So our closing talk uh, for this retreat is titled Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. (laughs) So here we all are, uh, coming to the end of our experiment, we could say, of a longish period of mostly silent, intensive practice here. And soon to be uh, taking yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever out there is for you. Which actually for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some of the thoughts and some of the feelings that aren't really so dissimilar to those that maybe we came into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go uh, into an extended period of intensive practice. just before it's a time to enter in, there also may be feelings um, that, well, I'm not really quite finished yet out here. I need really a few more days or another week would be good uh, so that I can get done what needs to be done and then I'll really be ready to go in to retreat. And it seems uh, that some of us have similar thoughts when it's time to come out. An excitement and readiness to go out into the larger world. And maybe there are also such thoughts as, well, just a a little bit more time, like a few more days or a couple of weeks or a month would be good. Then I'll get done what needs to be done and then I'll be finished and then I'll be ready to come out, and then I'll be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the coming into retreat and the going out of retreat, there might be some degree of reluctance, some resistance, maybe some fear on either end of the unknown, fear of the seeming known, Or maybe just essentially fear of change. Fear of ending one way and entering into another way. Something that uh, certainly some of you may have felt uh, in this retreat as we moved in and out of the various practice modalities that have been uh, offered in this retreat. A number of years ago when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts as the resident teacher for staff, I was talking with a friend the evening before um, he was uh, to begin sitting his maybe fourth or fifth three-month retreat. And I asked him how he was feeling. And uh, I think if I asked him the same question at the end of the retreat, which I didn't do, but... I have a feeling that the answer um, might have been similar. He said, oh, I'm feeling the obligatory fear. So you might check check in with yourself uh, and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings. Similar, in fact, conditioned patterns uh, within your own mind and heart coming up now at the end of the retreat that you maybe also experienced as you were preparing to come here or that maybe you felt at the onset of the retreat and as I've already mentioned maybe uh, also felt during the retreat as we moved in and out of these various uh, practice modalities during this retreat. And of course we might not feel anxiety in either direction entering into or coming out of a, 
intensive practice period. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a very clean, uh, clear, open readiness and a, and a happiness even uh, without any particular expectations or any particular worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase, the next form of life, however, it, uh, whatever form it, it takes. At a retreat that I taught some years ago at the Insight Meditation Society, one person described uh, coming out of retreat as feeling like uh, she was descending, she said, like descending in a plane, kind of, and landing. She said the feeling, the force of gravity, like coming back to Earth, was her description. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swickert regarding his experience in outer space. And I'd like to uh, share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence the depth of which you've never experienced before, and that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. And you look down at the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they're just like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element that point out on the end and that's a humbling feeling it's a feeling that says you have a responsibility it's not just for yourself the eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body that's why it's there that's why you're out there and somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life and you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference. And it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. And so reflecting on the supports that are available to you as we begin to make the change out of the retreat into life in the larger world. One change being in the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body, within our own mind. How quickly 
and incessantly things change all around us, even in the very slow pace of life and retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in its day-to-dayness or moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've also had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness developed over these two weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body, the mind, and the heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or choose to not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more connection and clarity in relationship to, to other, other beings, more clarity in what's important, what's, imp- what's appropriate, what's wholesome, and what's truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of a retreat setting. So this is a change, another change from here to there. Life in retreat offers the possibility of very little outside distraction. We sit, we eat, we walk, We do our yogi job, we sleep. You've practiced moving the body in authentic and maybe some unique ways. And you've learned to see, not just look. You've learned to see through the eye door, which opens up the door of drawing. And you've written words from a growing place of trust, spontaneity, and selflessness. You've spoken just a bit every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, the heart, and the mind. Been invited to see and to know in the mind and the heart just how it is. Is the mind opening to connecting and receiving what is? Or is it disconnected? Is it separated? With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer, closer to seeing and to knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, what brings calm, what brings joy, what brings a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all these cycles within our mind, our heart, and our body. 
So this seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're all, all of us, so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, we're really just variations on themes. We're all really totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila or virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our heart, our mind, affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this that I think I shared uh, the other day, but worth repeating. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. There's the possibility of engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice at home. So maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts and our words and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts uh, that I like very much that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza who <clears throat> used to live, I don't think she lives there anymore, but uh, on Green, at Green Gulch Zen Farm. And I'd like to <clears throat> share this with you because it's a particularly relevant rendition of the refuges um, and the precepts. Uh, it's particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, meaning the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha.
for me, as I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, that supports the process of purification and the uh, of the heart, which is very intimately related to the process of liberation, of awakening. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. As practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, uh, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling at all of forcing anything. We more and more easily and more naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So, a personal example. Uh, There was a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. And at some point, I really began to notice this as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd be be driving somewhere and my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. As we know, the force of habit is very, very strong. So, mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. (laughs) And at some point, then I started to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was really available to or not to. Looking at another change, in this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days, some big events for you. An especially big day or big event for you in retreat might have been something as mundane as laundry day. We have another one coming up tomorrow. For me, uh, there were times in the early years of long intensive retreat practice that laundry laundry day was such a huge addition uh, to my day that at times I would find myself um, planning for it or thinking about it before I went to sleep the night before. (laughs) And then sometimes it would be the very first thing that would come into my mind when I woke up that morning. And I suspect that uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. And how about the big event of the midday meal? So what will we have for lunch today? (laughs) And then before you've even eaten lunch today or you're halfway through, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? Or the event of having a one-on-one practice meeting, practice interview. And then in this retreat, the, uh, the big day or the big, well, the big day of the first day of the movement practice or the first day of the seeing drawing practice or the first day of writing practice. A poem by wandering Japanese Buddhist poet who died a few years ago, Nanao Sakaki, he calls it a big day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. (laughs) Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about um, 20 to 30 minutes north of here. And he'd show up at Lama 
with his small knapsack and sleeping bag, and he'd stay there for a few days. And they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains uh, with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone uh, for a few weeks, and then he'd be back at Lama again. Uh, a very dear friend of mine who was uh, the coordinator up at Lama during these years when Nanao used to visit told me a story about one of these times um, when Nanao came in for a day or two from the mountains. He'd been out for a while and he'd come back into Lama for a couple days and he asked her and another friend if they would um, like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. And uh, and my friend said that this was something really very special, um, something, in fact, that had never been offered before. So on the appointed day and time, my friend and uh, the other invitee um, found their way uh, to Nanao's camping spot by following his very uh, careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready, and there wasn't any food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary. That there was plenty of food, he told them. Well, my friend thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that um, this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them and welcomed them very warmly and heartily and said, well, now let's go out and look for dinner. <laughs> Fine dinner. So my friend said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And then they came back and they built a fire and cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or even for a couple of weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong and healthy and happy. Once someone in an interview um, spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste. And we taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And as we know, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do in the way we spend time with a partner, with family, with friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We really, truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take away with us from the simplicity of life and retreat. And of course there are some complex responsibilities and commitments in our lives that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very, very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy. What we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, complex relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in ways 
in the ways that we engage, in the ways that we use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance, more balance within ourselves, and more balance within our life as a whole. And we find that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, and our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can also find many, many moments throughout the day when we can simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath in almost any circumstance, almost any activity. So from this perspective, actually, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful (coughs) mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. It's all the mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago now, and who had, long before I met her, uh, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff, told me a story uh, that's really a wonderful uh, mirror of a particular and difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community that she was living in in France, there was an old man who was a very difficult, irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate, wouldn't help with things, and basically didn't get along with others in the community. And she said that no one liked him very much, and he himself didn't seem like he liked very many of the people in the community either. And she said that he tried for quite a long time to stay there, but it was really quite difficult for him as well as for the other people there. So difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris. He couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he said he couldn't do it. It was just way too hard for him to be there. 
So Gurji finally uh, offered him a monthly stipend to come back, <laughs> which the man uh, couldn't refuse. He was a very poor man. And so he did return. And when he arrived back at the community, she said everyone was really just aghast. <laughs> and they were more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there <laughs> because they themselves actually had to pay to live in the community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting <clears throat> of everyone and he listened to everyone's complaints. And then he laughed and he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. <laughs> the conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all very much part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our heart and mind, yeast for our awakening yeast for our liberation. <clears throat> There's one teaching among the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha offered where the Buddha uses a metaphor of a mother who has four sons uh, for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. And for those of you that don't know, the four divine abidings are metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. Each of the sons in this teaching from the Buddha, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. I only have three sons. <laughs> but they've managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years for those very four divine abidings, amongst other things. Our closest people can be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, what they give to us, what they show us, so an example, my two oldest sons, who are now uh, 48 uh, and are identical twins, continue to show me, continue to teach me a relationship that's really very rare. They're each other's best friends. And all, although when they were little guys, they um, would fight with each other, as children do, over the years... They've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. And they never, really never put each other down. No matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been dis disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is a, a very rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. <clears throat> and some words from the Buddha regarding this. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem from uh, 
the Turkish uh, of Edib Kansever. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name properly, but and the translator is Richard Tillingast. And this is a poem called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life. He put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and picked on the t- and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer, he put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. <laughs> it didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm, and the man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a focused, concentrated attention that's grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these two weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, as we connect with the larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation is not usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that developed along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in a retreat like this are a great support and a great protection as we connect with the larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, and investigation and the continuing blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat with Sada Upandita and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks, and I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me uh, around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That's all he said. Pretty good advice. In terms of integrating your practice of a relaxed and focused mindful attention and investigation, integrating it more and more fully into your life. You might consider incorporating some of the movement practices that, we've, that you've explored. You might consider setting up some specific time for seeing drawing and for writing, setting it into your weekly schedule in some way. 
I'd like to <clears throat> share another poem that I found to be quite inspirational by a man called Red Hawk. It's called An Inquiry into Art. The idea is to catch the moment and dance. To look at the world from both sides, like the farmer in Iowa who glances up from his plow, startled. Believing he has just caught a scent of the ocean, looking up he sees instead rain clouds and shakes his head smiling. At his first nod, a gull bends brightly out on a band of wind, dancing in a haze of rain. He looks to heaven, and his face fills with rain. His hair floats on air. His shirt billows and gasps. He rises and flies west. And there are some uh, particular ways that I and others have found to be very helpful in bringing a simple and yet very direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into one's life. And one suggestion that uh, a friend of mine, a teacher friend of mine, uh, has is that at the end of each hour of the day, Take one or two minutes to just stop. To just stop and be still and simply connect with the breath, either at the anapana spot, at the touching point at the nostrils, or in the area of the belly. So, one or two minutes, not very long, at the end of each hour. So however long your waking day is, That could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very direct, focused, mindful time, which each of these minutes actually having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice uh, into our daily life is to remember at moments during the day to touch into physical sensation through contact. So the feet on the ground, the bottom touching a chair, hands touching each other, or legs and hands touching each other. When that's done, when that's mindfully connected with, mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened each time we do this. And I think really the only hard thing about doing these very brief little meditation sessions is to remember to do them. The hardest thing is just to remember to do them. I know some people who put uh, little sticky notes to themselves around their, around their home or in their workplace to remind them to check in. So, for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror, breath, or a little stand-up note on your desk, at work, or at home, still breathing, (laughs) or metta, now. There was a fellow on staff at IMS when I was there as the resident teacher who worked in the front office, and he had a little stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks. (laughs) It was to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. And it worked for a while, and then he'd stop noticing it, so he had to think of something else. But uh, <laughs> Walking meditation can really be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. Really an important uh, aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Many of us walk at least a few miles going from place to place place through a day and certainly through a week. And we can make some of this uh, walking a time of practice. When I lived at IMS, again as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many, many practice interviews, 
uh, during a, a week and uh, with staff, and then I also had lots of meetings. Uh, I didn't have much time at all during the day to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, that would be my walking practice time. And once I decided that, um, I did it. I did that most days. And at one point, uh, one of the staff members came in for his practice interview, and he was obviously quite um, agitated. Uh, and with difficulty, he told me that he was very upset, he said, because I was ignoring him. And he said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. So I, I told him that going up and down the stairs was my meditation, walking, walking meditation practice time, and that I certainly hadn't abandoned him, and I wasn't angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as uh, deeply as I possibly could going up and down the stairs. Well, this completely changed his attitude, and he was all excited and happy for me, and he, he told me he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And it's also really helpful, as some of you know, to connect with others who practice. And we certainly can um, see the benefit and feel the benefit of this as many of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected, at least sometimes, with a group, even just a group of two or three, to sit with, for, sit with once in a while, check in and see if there's a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't, then start one, which means just asking another one or two people who meditate or who are interested in meditating to join you once a week or every other week. You can sit together, sit together first and then maybe read something out loud about the teachings and the practice or maybe listen to a Dhamma talk, a CD, and taking turns each week who, who chooses the reading or the CD and then maybe have some discussion, some Dhamma discussion about what you've listened to and also maybe about your practice. It can also be helpful uh, at times to maybe pick a theme for a week or for a couple of weeks to focus on. The Buddha, in conversation with Ananda, uh, who was one of his very closest and chief, chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Nanda in this conversation between the two of them said to the Buddha, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda and said, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life. Maybe the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient, determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy will increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. 
it's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another poem from Nanasakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) 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 And I would add, in the time that you have, take time to let the body move. Take time for seeing and drawing. Take time for writing. And definitely take time to sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to close this evening's talk with two last poems. And another one, uh, one last one from Nanao, kind of as a tribute to him and as a tribute to our practice. And he calls this poem a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go to see the southern coral reef in summer or the winter drifting ices in the Sea of Oxt. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system, mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle ten billion light years large, all thoughts of time, space are burnt away. And there again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. closing the talk with a poem from Native American woman named Joy Harjo and she calls this eagle poem to pray you open your whole self to sky to earth to sun to moon to one whole voice that is you And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing 
we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.